Harrison Ford breaks his arm doing carpentry, Peter Cushing wears slippers and smells of lavender, Carrie Fisher doesn't lose 10 pounds, and George Lucas abandons the film. From 1977, it's Star Wars. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. Let's be honest, no matter how I start this podcast, it's absolutely impossible for me to find words to appropriately convey just what a gargantuan success Star Wars was at the time of its 1977 release, or what a far-reaching impact the film continues to have today. Adjusted for inflation, Only Gone with the Wind beats Star Wars and success at the U.S. box office, and there's arguably no other film series with such a loyal and constantly growing fan base. It's beyond inspiring that Star Wars, a whole new world of galaxies, technologies, and peoples, came from the mind of one man, George Lucas. The 32-year-old Lucas not only wrote and directed the film, He also managed to convey his grand vision for Star Wars across countless disciplines and film departments, such as sound and special effects, costumes, scenery, editing, and cinematography necessary to bring Star Wars to life on screen. The film changed the lives of all involved, making Lucas an extremely wealthy man overnight and a filmmaker to be reckoned with. Star Wars made immediate stars and cultural icons out of Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher. For our Star of the Month Peter Cushing, playing the evil Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars made Cushing's noble face familiar with a new generation of fans, piquing interest in his earlier work. The filming of Star Wars was an enjoyable experience for Peter and proved a welcome relief as he grieved the loss of his wife Helen. Though Peter continued working for just under a decade after Star Wars, beating prostate cancer and earning a title as an officer of the Order of the British Empire in the process, Grand Moff Tarkin remains Cushing's best-remembered role from the second half of his career. Let's get right to the plot. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there's a civil war going on. Princess Leia Organa is a rebellion leader captured by a Star Destroyer of the Evil Empire. Just before her capture, Leia bravely puts the plans of the Death Star, the Empire's space station, on a droid, R2-D2. Leia hopes R2 and his buddy, fellow droid C-3PO, will get the plans to Jedi Obi-Wan Kenobi, whom Leia trusts to carry the plans to her home planet Alderaan for analysis. R2 and C-3PO manage to escape from the Star Destroyer, but the evil Darth Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin suspect what Leia has done, and, knowing of her rebel connections, threaten to blow up Alderaan if Leia doesn't tell them where the rebel base is located. To save her planet, Leia discloses the rebel location to Tarkin, who then proceeds to blow up Alderaan anyway. Meanwhile, R2 and C-3PO safely make it to the planet Tatooine, where Jawa traders capture and sell them to farmers Luke Skywalker and his uncle Owen. Back at the farm, R2 plays a clip of a hologram recording of Leia, in which she mentions an Obi-Wan Kenobi, 
whom Luke surmises is his neighbor, the reclusive old Ben Kenobi. When R2 runs away from the farm in search of Obi-Wan, Luke and C-3PO go after him and come across Ben Kenobi shortly after finding R2. Ben confirms that he is Obi-Wan, a Jedi Master, betrayed by his former pupil, Darth Vader, who now uses the Force for evil, Ben tells Luke that Vader is also responsible for the death of Luke's father, who fought alongside Obi-Wan before the Empire put an end to the Jedi and took control of the galaxy. R2 plays Princess Leia's message for Ben and Luke in its entirety, and they hear her instructions to take the Death Star plans to Alderaan, where her father will analyze them to plan a rebel attack. Luke is first reluctant to join Obi-Wan in the journey, but after discovering that Empire stormtroopers tracked down the droids to Luke's family farm and killed his aunt and uncle, Ben and Luke both set out, along with the two droids, to find a pilot to fly them to Alderaan. Smuggler Han Solo and his Wookiee friend Chewbacca offer to take Luke, Ben, and the two droids to Alderaan on their ship, the rather junky but very speedy Millennium Falcon. It's an exorbitant fee Solo charges, but an unpaid debt to Jabba the Hutt makes him as anxious to leave Tatooine as Ben and Luke, so it's a fee they're willing to pay. The Millennium Falcon leaves Tatooine just before Empire Stormtroopers catch up with Ben, Luke, and the droids. Well, of course, our guys can't go to Alderaan because it's been blown up, an event that Obi-Wan can feel through the Force. The Millennium Falcon is then captured by the Death Star's tractor beam, and now the crew must find a way to escape. While Obi-Wan goes to disable the tractor beam, Luke, Han, and Chewie decide to rescue Princess Leia. Darth Vader and Obi-Wan can feel each other's presence on the Death Star, and a duel with lightsabers is inevitable. Obi-Wan, realizing that he'll be more useful to Luke as a spirit of the Force, seems to let Vader win the duel. Now, Obi-Wan can be the voice of guidance inside Luke's head whenever Luke is in tune enough with the Force to use it. Minus Ben and plus the Princess, our group safely gets back on board the Millennium Falcon and escapes the Death Star. Princess Leia feels the escape was too easy and correctly guesses that the Empire is tracking them back to the Rebel base at Yavin 4. So the Rebels quickly analyze the Death Star plans and conclude that the battle station can be destroyed by a precise torpedo firing down a small thermal exhaust port to its reactor, which will set off a chain reaction. Luke joins the Rebels in the risky fight, while Han decides to leave Rebel Base right after he collects his reward for rescuing Leia. Luke becomes the Rebellion's star pilot during the assault on the Death Star. As his friends and fellow pilots are killed off one by one, Luke manages to escape the shots of Darth Vader with a combination of Obi-Wan's guidance through the Force and Han Solo's surprise reappearance and help during the battle. Luke successfully makes the impossible torpedo shot, and the Death Star is destroyed, killing all on board, including Grand Moff Tarkin. Back on the Rebel base, everyone basks in victory and camaraderie while Princess Leia awards Luke and Han medals for their bravery. The good guys have won, but we get the sense that Star Wars and the adventures of our heroes are just beginning. And that's the end of the film. If you remember from my podcast on Dracula, Frankenstein, and Peter Cushing's Hammer Horror Years, the frequency with which Peter was cast in horror films, and the skill he brought to each role, led to his typecasting in the genre. 
Though Peter's wife Helen worried about the issue, wishing for her husband's multifaceted talent to be utilized across film genres, Peter felt the financial stability his frequent horror film roles brought was worth the opportunity costs. Chief among the financial rewards was Peter's newfound ability to comfortably provide Helen with some of life's luxuries, as well as the top-grade medical care her fragile health required. As Peter writes in his autobiography, quote, There'd been so many lean years, and I was desperately anxious to make provision for our old age together, and to ensure that Helen lacked for nothing in the meantime. Throughout all the years I'd known her, she'd never once asked for anything for herself, and it was such a joy to be in a position, at last, to give her a few luxuries, and above all, more extensive medical care and attention." Unquote. Helen's lungs were now strained to the point that she suffered from a constant cough and couldn't breathe without assistance. Peter's income from successive Hammer films allowed him to take Helen to a Polish specialist who, though insisting they came to him 10 years too late for miracles, was able to cure her cough over a three-week treatment period. Helen's overall health was so improved that, as Peter said, quote, to our way of thinking, the doctor from Poland had performed a miracle, unquote. But Helen's days of restored health wouldn't last. Her weakness was such that she couldn't climb the stairs of the Cushing home, and Peter thoughtfully installed a stair lift so Helen could reach the bedroom. By January of 1971, Helen was diagnosed with emphysema and required full-time care at the hospital. Helen's doctor eventually gave Peter permission to bring his wife home under constant medical supervision. It was at home with Peter beside her that Helen Cushing passed away on January 14, 1971. To underscore just how difficult Helen's death was for Peter, he ended his first autobiography, published in 1986, with Helen's death. Peter felt his life effectively ended with Helen's passing and would only publish a second volume of memoirs that covered his later years at the request of fans two years later. With Helen gone, Peter even briefly considered suicide, quote, Deep down, I knew I'd never take such a step, but because of the numbing agony of those early days following the passing of my dear Helen, it was inevitable that I should contemplate suicide. It's not allowed by God, it wouldn't get me where I wanted anyway, to be reunited immediately with Helen, and, in any case, I hadn't the necessary courage." Unquote. Peter spent the next 10 years of his life in near-social seclusion, mourning the loss of Helen. Cushing's longtime assistant, Joyce Broughton, called Helen's death the most disastrous thing that could happen to her employer and good friend. In an interview with Tony Wilmont for Weekend Magazine, titled, I Can't Live Without My Wife, Peter touchingly bore his soul and deep spirituality when discussing Helen. Quote, when Helen passed on six years ago, I lost the only joy in life that I ever wanted. She was my whole life, and without her, there's no meaning. I'm simply killing time, so to speak, until that wonderful day when we're together again. Unquote. Work was Peter Cushing's saving grace, and little did Peter know that during these difficult years, he'd make the most iconic film of his entire career. Star Wars was a whole new world invented by 32-year-old filmmaker George Lucas, but at the beginning of Lucas's career, he wasn't a writer. It took the prodding of Lucas's good friend, director Francis Ford Coppola, 
to get him writing, a skill obviously necessary for Lucas to eventually make Star Wars a reality. Quote, Coppola had to force me to write my first script. You want to do a film? You write it. And I said, no, 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 we ought to hire someone to write it. I don't want to write it. I'm not a writer. I can't write. But he said, you're never going to be a good director unless you learn to write. Go and write, kid. Unquote. And so, Lucas wrote his first feature film script for THX 1138, a film he also directed. Lucas called the script terrible, but was overall proud of the film, despite its box office failure. Lucas was much happier with his screenplay for his next film project, the very successful American Graffiti. Elements of Star Wars are present in both films. The dark THX-1138 is set in space, while American Graffiti is an uplifting story. But it would still take Lucas time to fully commit to writing his completely original vision for a feel-good space opera. In fact, it was only after Lucas failed to buy the screen rights to Flash Gordon, a space comic strip turned serial from the 1930s, that he decided to write his own space fantasy. Lucas realized that, really, it was for the best that Flash Gordon didn't work out. Quote, I realized that Flash Gordon is like anything you do that's established. That is, you start out being faithful to the original material, but eventually it gets in the way of creativity. I realized that Flash Gordon wasn't the movie I wanted to do. I decided at that point to do something more original. I knew I could do something totally new. I wanted to take ancient, mythological motifs and update them. I wanted to have something totally free and fun, the way I remembered space fantasy." Unquote. And so, George Lucas set out to write Star Wars. Inspired by Flash Gordon, classic Hollywood westerns, and Errol Flint swashbucklers, Lucas believed that Star Wars could be a piece of positivity the kids of the 1970s were missing. Quote, after the 1960s, it was the end of the protest movement and the whole phenomenon. The drugs were really getting bad, kids were dying, and there was nothing left to protest. American Graffiti said essentially that we're all very good, and Star Wars was very much like American Graffiti, so I thought it'd be more beneficial for the kids. When I started the film, 10 and 12-year-olds didn't really have the fantasy life that we'd had. They didn't have any real vision of all the incredible and crazy and wonderful things that we had when we were young. Pirate movies and westerns and all that. Unquote. Lucas would fill that gap with his Star Wars, but it was a long journey before he could even find a studio to finance the film. Deals with United Artists and Universal would fall through before 20th Century Fox, thanks to Alan Ladd Jr., yes, the son of THE Alan Ladd, finally expressed interest. Fox gave Lucas a very informal deal for Star Wars in the summer of 1973, agreeing to pay Lucas $10,000 for a first draft of the screenplay and an additional $30,000 once principal photography began. But that was it. Fox retained the right to back out of Star Wars at any time. How reassuring. But it was the only deal George Lucas could get for Star Wars, so he accepted and plowed ahead with his script. Between winter of 1973 and January of 1976, Lucas went through four drafts of his story. Interesting side note, in Lucas's second draft, Luke's Starkiller, 
it didn't become Skywalker until much later, was a girl. At times during the writing process, Lucas thought he was literally going crazy. Quote, You go crazy writing. You get psychotic. You get yourself so psyched up and go in such strange directions in your mind that it's a wonder that all writers aren't put away someplace. Because there's just no guideline. You don't know if what you're doing is good or bad or indifferent. It always seems bad when you're doing it. It seems terrible. It's the hardest thing to get through. Unquote. Even friends wondered at times just what the Star Wars story was. As friend and screenwriter Hal Barwood would say, quote, It started off in horrible shape. It was difficult to discern there was a movie there. It did have R2 and it did have 3PO, but it was very hard for us to wrap our heads around the idea of a golden robot and this little beer can. We didn't know what it meant. But George never gave up. And he worked and worked and worked. Unquote. All that hard work and vision paid off, for Lucas finally completed his fourth and final draft of Star Wars in January of 1976. Coupled with finally an official production distribution contract with Fox, which gave Lucas an $8.2 million budget, Star Wars was officially set to begin filming in London and Tunisia in March of 1976. Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness were the only two established movie stars in Star Wars. Guinness, as Obi-Wan Kenobi, received £15,000 weekly and wisely asked for 2% of the film's profits. As Grand Moff Tarkin, Peter Cushing wasn't included in a profits deal, but at an earnings of £2,000 a day, Peter no doubt had the second best payment plan in the cast. George Lucas felt strongly that Star Wars required a villain with a human face, as the face of Darth Vader, physically played by weightlifter David Prowse, who incidentally went on to train Christopher Reeve for Superman, is famously covered throughout the film with that sinister helmet. As the role of Tarkin grew in size and importance with each draft, Lucas knew he needed an exceptional actor to pull off the character, quote, I got a little nervous about it. So I wanted somebody really strong, a really good villain, and actually, Peter Cushing was my first choice on that, once I decided we were really going to spend some money to go with a really good actor, rather than just some stock day player villain." Unquote. Though uncomfortable with all the technical jargon, something that the research-oriented Peter must have found particularly difficult, because how do you research something George Lucas made up? Peter was absolutely flattered to be sought out for the role, and happily accepted. Quote, When you get to be my age, and you're still wanted, it gives you an awfully nice feeling. The older you get, the lonelier you feel. When you're over 60, you think you're on the shelf. Unquote. How lovable is Peter's gratitude for the role? I seriously doubt Peter Cushing was ungrateful a single day of his life. As a sign of the prestige Cushing brought to the film, in the original advertisements for Star Wars, his Grand Moff Tarkin is played up as the film's main villain, not Darth Vader. Casting unknowns in the three leading roles of the film ensured that Lucas had the budget necessary to afford Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker earned $1,000 a week, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia $850 a week, and Harrison Ford, in an ironic twist of fate, as Ford would undoubtedly go on to become the biggest star of the three, 
earned a mere $750 weekly as Han Solo. In fact, Ford, as a familiar face from American Graffiti, was almost not cast at all. Ford's chances were further slimmed because, through most of his drafts, George Lucas envisioned an African-American actor in the Han Solo role. Christopher Walken, now that would have been interesting, was another frontrunner over Ford for much of the casting process. It took the prodding of casting director Fred Roos for Lucas to even consider casting Harrison Ford in the role that it now seems no one else could play. Oh, and there was that whole thing about Harrison Ford quitting acting. Yes, Harrison Ford briefly quit acting before he got the Han Solo role in Star Wars. As Ford, the father of two young children, explained his decision, quote, I left acting to become a carpenter because our second baby was coming, and we like to eat. I wasn't making it as an actor, unquote. A carpentry client of Ford's at this time was none other than Valerie Harper, one of my very favorite actresses, best known as Rhoda in the Mary Tyler Moore show, and Rhoda, the successful spin-off show. Valerie shares a fascinating anecdote in her autobiography about the young father and expert carpenter who built the loft in her living room. Quote, When he showed up, I was struck by how extremely handsome he was, as well as soft-spoken and serious. While he worked on our loft, I learned that he was an actor, doing carpentry to support his family while he waited for a break. Well, he got one. Falling from our loft, he broke his arm. Look, I told him, sometimes an accident is a message. You broke your hammering arm. Maybe it's time to stop carpentry and focus on your acting career, Harrison. Yes, his last name was Ford. I'm sure he would have become a star even without my advice, but I like to think that that fall from our loft gave him a push in the right direction. Unquote. Who knows, maybe Valerie's advice is what propelled Harrison Ford back to acting. Either way, Ford's carpentry skills still played a part in his eventual earning of the Han Solo role. Casting director Fred Roos, rooting for Harrison Ford to get the role, hired him to install a door at the American Zotrope offices just when he knew George Lucas would be around for a meeting with Richard Dreyfus. Seen Ford, in his own words, cast as the blue-collar worker, worked for Lucas. As Fred Roos related, it just kind of clicked for George at that point and Harrison Ford was cast in the role that finally jump-started his acting career. Though still mourning the loss of Helen, Peter Cushing was, as always, the complete gentleman on the Star Wars set. Mark Hamill, a longtime fan of Peter's and his Hammer Horror films, was disappointed to discover he didn't have any scenes with the actor, and wouldn't get a chance to meet Cushing if he didn't crash the set on the day Peter was filming. So that's just what Hamill did and he couldn't have been more impressed with the humble and gracious Peter. Quote, Carrie had just started when she did her scenes with Cushing. The next day, between takes, I did go get his autograph. Cushing is the ultimate English gentleman, so distinguished. Though I never worked with him, there was no way I would have missed meeting him. He used to cycle to Helen's grave every morning. He was very fragile, but a wonderful guy, really sweet. Unquote. Both Hamill and David Prowse, Darth Vader, would comment on how Peter, ever the English gentleman, 
wore white gloves whenever taking a cigarette break so that the costume and makeup departments wouldn't have to remove nicotine stains from his fingers or costume. My favorite anecdotes that underscore Peter's kindness and gentlemanly demeanor on Star Wars involve his scenes with Carrie Fisher. The 19-year-old Fisher in her first starring role was, despite her spunky exterior, full of insecurities on set. As Carrie relates in The Princess Diarist, her memoirs of the film, quote, I had endless issues with my appearance in Star Wars. Real ones. Not the ones you bring up so people think you're humble because you secretly find yourself adorable. Unquote. Though the rest of us are taken with Fisher's adorable beauty in the film, it's understandable where her insecurities came from. Carrie was signed to play Princess Leia on the condition that she lose 10 pounds for the role. It was literally written into her contract. Mother Debbie Reynolds recommended a particular quote-unquote fat farm, as Carrie would refer to it, in Texas, where Carrie spent a week trying unsuccessfully to lose the required weight. When Carrie arrived in London for filming, her first scenes were with Peter Cushing. Whether Peter was aware of her insecurities or not, Carrie couldn't have asked for a kinder actor to begin the film with. Peter insisted on standing in the shadows during their scene together, giving Fisher the most flattering lighting. Peter's selfless act was a gift to the young actress in many ways. Not only does Carrie look radiantly beautiful in the lighting Cushing gallantly gave her, seeing Princess Leia in the saintly lighting lends to our early interpretation of the character as the righteous leader of her people with altruistic hopes for the rebellion. Is it any wonder that Carrie Fisher, like everyone else, absolutely adored working with Peter Cushing? Fisher would even say that the line she spoke on this first day of filming, the ones where she comments on Tarkin's foul stench, were extremely difficult for her to direct at Peter because she liked him so much. Quote, I liked Peter Cushing so much that, in my mind, I had to substitute someone else in order to get the hatred for him. I had to say, I recognize your foul stench, but the man smelled like linen and lavender. Unquote. It's clear from a rare blooper of the scene just what an affinity Peter and Carrie had for each other. Go to my website, macronsandmimi.com, and search Star Wars to watch this blooper. Notice the huge smiles on Carrie's face and Peter's as he tries to work with the line he flubs before accepting defeat. It's absolutely adorable. Oh, and of course, that linen and lavender scent Carrie mentions is evidence of Peter's affinity for brushing his teeth. If you remember from my introduction podcast on Peter Cushing, he always had toothbrushes handy at home and on his film sets, conscious of never offending those around him with bad breath. During Star Wars, there were constant wardrobe malfunctions. Anthony Daniels, C-3PO in the film, would deal with those golden pants falling off at the most inconvenient times. Chewbacca's eyes had a tendency to separate from the hair and the inside of the mask worn by Peter Mayhew. While Carrie Fisher shared that even though it took the hairdresser hours each morning to bolt those double bagel buns to the side of her head, they'd still manage to get messed up during all the running down corridors Princess Leia does in the film. Despite his star status, Peter Cushing wasn't exempt from the wardrobe challenges, which were largely the result of the meager budget George Lucas was given by Fox for the film. 
For Peter, it was footwear that presented the problem. Peter's size 12 feet just didn't work with the much too small combat boots that went with his Tarkin costume. After trying to deal with the pain, Peter asked George Lucas if they could work something else out. Quote, After the first day's work, I could bear it no longer, so I approached the director, George Lucas. Dear fellow, I said, I'm not asking for close-ups, but do you think you could shoot me from the waist up from now on? He consented kindly, and I was allowed to stomp about looking very cross as Grand Moff Tarkin for the rest of the film in carpet slippers." Unquote. Who would have thought that had the camera panned just a little lower, we all would have seen the villainous Grand Moff Tarkin wearing some comically informidable footwear. Somehow, with a small budget of $8.2 million, though Lucas did go over budget by about $3 million, on a film that really required twice that amount, George Lucas created a masterpiece. He successfully conveyed and directed his vision for Star Wars across multiple disciplines and film departments. Lucas himself would refer to Star Wars not as a finished film, but as the film he was forced to abandon once the premiere date arrived. It's possible that Lucas, ever the perfectionist, would have continued working on Star Wars had there not been that deadline. At Lucas's insistence, the film premiered not during the summer of 1977, but in late May, before school was out. Wisely, George Lucas surmised that Star Wars would benefit from word of mouth. If kids were still in school when the film premiered, they'd see Star Wars and tell their friends about it, resulting in greater audience turnout. It was a genius idea that worked. Lines formed around the block of every theater that showed Star Wars, despite the limited studio-produced publicity. In June of 1977, telephone operators in Los Angeles reportedly received 100 calls an hour from theatergoers inquiring about Star Wars showtimes. And by July of 1977, Star Wars had already earned $18.2 million at the box office. Peter Cushing continued to work regularly in television and film for just under a decade after the release of Star Wars. According to his assistant, Joyce Broughton, Cushing's 10 years of social seclusion following Helen's death surprisingly ended when Peter was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1982. Given only 18 months to live, Peter would confound science by making an almost complete recovery from the cancer. As Peter says at the end of his autobiography, quote, I'm still regarded by the local medical fraternity as a walking miracle. And I hope most earnestly that my close encounter with the great leveler will be of equal value to those who need such assurance and to show what can be done against all odds with a lot of loving help, a lot of faith, which can move mountains, and a modicum of willpower, unquote. In the years that followed his recovery, Peter continued riding his bike, made films and television appearances, gave interviews, wrote his memoirs, had a watercolor he painted chosen by Prince Edward for charity auction, was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire, and even saw to it that a rose was named after his dear Helen. Quite an inspiring schedule for an older gentleman who wasn't expected to live more than 18 months after his cancer diagnosis. I personally believe Peter Cushing must have been reunited with his beloved Helen when he passed away on August 11, 1994.
No other fate seems fitting for Peter, who wanted nothing more than to be reunited with the woman he believed made everything in his life possible. Peter Cushing may not be the household name, at least in the U.S., that this talented actor, who also happened to be the ultimate English gentleman, deserves. But with films like Star Wars, and the consistently amazing performances that go beyond even his most iconic Hammer Horror roles, there's no doubt that Peter Cushing remains a revered actor who won't be forgotten. And that wraps up our month with Peter Cushing. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And be sure to join me in November as I introduce our next star to celebrate, the talented and too often underrated Shelley Winters.